Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. I did something a little mean to a good friend of mine. I made her watch Kevin Smith's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and Vera Chitlova's unsparing feminist treatsy Traps. This was for Movie Gifts, a little game where each guest gave another person two gifts. Uh, I'm doing air quotes. One was a film that they'd be interested in hearing that person talk about, the other a film we think they'll really like. This time around, I was joined by the same crew. Michael Koreski. I'm the editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Uh, Nick Pinkerton, film critic at large. And poor... Aliza Ma, the head of programming at Metrograph. Except that we reversed the giving. Nick gave Michael two films. I gave Nick two films. Michael gave Aliza two films. And Aliza gave me two films. Now, behold the glory that is Revenge of Movie Gifts. That's right. We have taken the concept of the first movie gifts and reversed it. Let the games begin. Let the games. <laughs> 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 what happens when you do a 6 p.m. I know. I'm just totally, it's 6 p.m. on a Thursday. I'm totally deranged. Um, so, Michael, why don't you talk about the movie that Nick gave you that was something that he thought you might enjoy? Well... I'll let me preface it by saying I wasn't entirely clear which film was the one that he thought I would enjoy um, without question. I think he left that rather ambiguous. And I will say that I wasn't entirely clear on that either, <laughs> mm. because so, uh, I uh, I don't play by the rules. I'm right. a bit of a maverick, right? Or like Johnny or Mac, <laughs> or you just don't read the directions, one or the other, or that. Yeah. But regardless, I'm going to guess that the film that is less potentially in my wheelhouse was uh, Night Riders, 1981 film by George A. Romero. And I'd say might not be my wheelhouse, not because I don't like Romero, actually, I love Romero. Um, and this movie came in his career sandwiched between two of my favorite Romero films, Dawn of the Dead and Creepshow. Um, but Night Riders is something that I never got around to seeing and perhaps never would have watched honestly, if you hadn't um, forced me to for this podcast, only because the subject matter, from what very little I knew of it, just does not match up with my, seemingly with my temperament or interests. <laughs> and that subject matter, um, it's, a, it's about a community, and it really is a community, and it's about community, um, of medieval reenactors, Renaissance fair actors. Uh, they kind of, it's not just their profession, it's their life's blood. It's, it's how they... It's a philosophy. It's how they see the world. It's um, Ed Harris is the kind of the king. He's the King Arthur of the group. He's the um, sort of obsessive who runs this troupe. And I oh, I also have to add, <laughs> of course, that um, and this is a twist. Though it comes about thirty seconds into the movie, um, they're also bikers. So they're they are these <laughs> medieval um, reenactors who perform their jousts on motorcycles. 
and this seems to be enjoyed sort of by pretty small crowds of people actually <laughs> the film the film seems like it was shot on a series of in a series of like weird parking lots <laughs> that Romero seemed Where to find here Where else did you get a motorcycle joust? And there are a lot of motorcycle jousts in the film. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy them, but there, there's, there are quite a few. I, I, I do want to say that Romero's film, despite the fact that this subject matter is so um, odd, and the film is really odd, and for reasons you know we can enumerate, the filmmaking is quite beautiful. And I think it maybe gave me more of an appreciation of his filmmaking than anything I've ever seen by him. And I think that really only happens when a director is sort of taken out of his or her comfort zone. And um, though this was somewhat of a passion project for him, apparently, it's a very long film. It's, it's so you could say it's like, you know, he, after the success of Dawn of the Dead, he had this somewhat indulgent passion project. Um, but I think that you just see like the pure craft and the actual there's a real beauty to the way he views people in this movie it's it's in a sense it's about um kind of like the death of idealism in a way and it's a film about utopias of course this utopia is sort of like an autocracy because ed harris is so obsessed with reigning supreme over these people and they all seem to want him to be that that ruler so it's an odd dynamic that he that he creates, but everyone kind of falls in line because there's the Arthur, there's a Guinevere, there's a Lancelot, it's certainly, and there's all sorts of characters who kind of play off of other sorts of Arthurian legends and persona. So there's the sense of it being this kind of like 60s holdover. And it, I, I was actually thinking of the movie The Big Chill a lot while I was watching it, a movie that I do not like at all. But it, there is kind of a, you know, last gasp of these idealistic counterculture types and how it's kind of, now that it's the early 80s, everything's moving into a more commercialized, commodified world. So you have this Martin Ferrero character. <laughs> and Martin Ferrero, for those who don't know him by name, was the lawyer who gets eaten by the T-Rex in Jurassic Park on the toilet. <laughs> Iconic. One of, one of my favorite Iconic moments animated in any film. Gift. I, think, I think anyone who saw Jurassic Park when it first came out remembers the audience's delighted response <laughs> of the lawyer getting eaten on the toilet in Jurassic Park. It's um, uh, seared I, on my brain. This came up recently, and our, our dear friend Julian Allen, who is a, a barrister, said something to the effects of, yeah, the punters always like it when you throw him a lawyer. <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> one of the few lawyer critics out there. He must, he must, and who wrote a great piece about Cape Fear, which is one of the great anti-lawyer films of all time. <laughs> um, so, Julian, if you're listening... We love you and we love your piece in Cape Fear. But anyway, to, so Martin Ferrer's character is this kind of like sleazy promoter who wants to actually, for some bizarre reason, make these <laughs> medieval motorcycle reenactors into these huge stars. <laughs> I'm, I'm, we're going to make it big, guys. We're going to make it big. You're laughing, but that is basically the premise of Netflix Glow. Oh, I wish I haven't. Except for watching. there, but isn't no, that lady wrestlers? It's lady wrestlers instead of medieval jousters on motorcycles, but basically the same thing. Oh well, I'll have to check potato, out all 12, 12 hours of that. I guess <laughs> when I have free time. Um, so there's so, so there's something interestingly playing off of '60s ideals and how they're kind of destined for failure. It has a I don't want to spoil the ending, but it has a, somewhat of a pessimistic ending. Um, and Ed Harris is actually really quite wonderful in the movie. Uh, it's his first starring role. And a year before his great cameo in Creepshow, 
where he gets a tombstone toppled on his head. You hear the grate is clearly like the sound of a watermelon being smashed by Gallagher. It's also something that I'll just never forget. My one of my favorite sound effects. Um, How do you specified Gallagher? They, they brought him in specifically because nobody else could handle melon smashing. It's such a human. A lot of people don't know who Gallagher is listening to this. Just just Google him. <laughs> I think that he's worth knowing. Do not pause the podcast to Google Gallagher. Please continue listening. Um, so within this kind of troop of of these these friends, you have the troop of Romero friends, right? This like great a recurring troop of people. So John Amplis, who was Martin and who was also um, the skeleton who comes from back from the dead to kill Ed Harris in Creepshow. Um, you have Canfori from Dawn of the Dead. Um, you have Savini, of course. Tom Savini, who's who's really great and kind of like one of the starring roles of the film. He's usually just the cameo, and he's of course the makeup makeup guru from all those films. Um, and in a completely delightful performance, um, who a man who did not act again after he was also in Creep Show the next year. His name was Warner Shook, who plays this um, completely sympathetic and non-stereotype gay character in this film Night Riders who um, ends up with a boyfriend. He, he kind of is brought out of the closet by one of the other people who's just asking, are, are you gay? Are you gay? And he's like, I don't want to talk about this. It makes me uncomfortable. This is 19, you know, this is a, a year after cruising. Don't forget. These yeah. were not characters you would see in movies. And by the end of the film, he just, he meets a bearded hunk and they, they're off, they, they're off into the sunset Aww. together. It's very <laughs> lovely. Um, also cameo by Creepshow star Stephen King. <laughs> As, oh as the grossest, ugly American of all time eating. Uh, I think he's called... hillbilly. <laughs> his, so he's eating a sandwich while he's watching one of these medieval jousts, and he's saying these horrible, disgusting things. And the credits, uh, he's credited as Hoagie Man. <laughs> um, so as you can tell, there's a really interesting balance between this kind of like beautiful pictorial filmmaking and these just kind of like low, down, dirty american types and he has just such beautiful open-hearted love for everyone it was uh, it was really quite good and um it's two and a half hours so i also took that as a sort of a revenge for me giving you the green mile on the last show Nick. <laughs> but exe- except night riders is a masterpiece whereas yes, no, the I, green mile is a mere near masterpiece <laughs> <laughs> a uh a flawed masterpiece. Let's yes, say. let's mm-hmm. let's say that. Um, but I would love to hear you say a couple things about it because I mean, it's yeah. it's a film that obviously means a lot to you, and I'm, I enjoyed it. Well, I mean, in point of fact, I rewatched it shortly after Romero's death, and in part of the reason for my doing so is I hadn't seen it in a lot of years. In fact, I think the last time I saw it was when I was an undergraduate, and I think it was on Laserdisc when I watched it. So I had to turn it over like seventeen times in the course of watching <laughs> it. Um, I hadn't seen it for a long time, but I was, you know, parsing all of these Romero bits and I was really disheartened because I didn't, none of them seemed to capture something very essential about him to me. And most seemed to reduce the career to, you know, the dead movies Mm -hmm. and possibly incorporating Martin as well. And there seemed to be something very much missing. And I think in rewatching... Night Riders, I found that. And to my mind, I, I found it very, very near to another movie that I have just boundless affection for, which is Clint Eastwood's Bronco Billy, which came out the same year, and which similarly is someone who has a particular alternative production model kind of 
using the story of a itinerant troupe to talk about their feelings toward their work and their craft. But in rewatching it, I was just so enormously moved. I mean, there's, I mean, very much the movie is about the process of Ed Harris, the Arthur character, learning to delegate and learning to step out of the way in a line of secession. And, and there's a moment when he finally does sort of let go of his grip on this troop uh, and hand the reins over to the, uh, char- the Tom Savini character, which I just found utterly devastating. And uh, I will only say it really reminded me of the loss that uh, that we experienced with, with Romero. Like, I, I, I felt there was something that wasn't being discussed about his consummate artistry and almost second sense film sense uh and it it it's all front and center there so it was very fresh in my mind and i just wanted to share it with my friend well I, well i appreciate it um but then the, all, the you know one last thing about it is that the the open-hearted warm generosity of that film i don't think is anomalous here i do think you no. can see it all through the dead films i think you see it in a lot of his horror films there's there's a real like humanistic quality here for lack of a better term and um I was very moved. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been here talking about Martin not all that terribly long ago, and I mean, I think it's very much the case in that film, even though Martin is a worm and a, a nasty little piece of work who does awful, awful things, one cannot help but feel for his isolation, confusion. Uh, there is a real empathetic breath to Romero and I've said this many times recently but as director editors go I'm not sure that there is a better one anyone who watches the film you'll know from the first two minutes that you're in the hands of a master the editing is incredible anyway thank you oh I was very touching so Nick yeah would you like to talk about the film that I gave you just for fun what? Which one is it? Well, that would be Casual Sex. Casual Sex? Which has a question mark in the title, casual which is why sex. I in- insist on pronouncing it Casual Sex. Sure, of All course. Right. From 1988. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose that stands to reason because uh, you know I'm uh, a fan of the Dice Man, yes. Andrew Dice Clay, who has a meaty role in this movie. <laughs> I certainly was probably like familiar with the VHS box art <laughs> same here <laughs> i i always it's with leah thompson sort of pulling the long yeah. shirt down over her legs and kind of a don't don't touch me quality yeah some uh, and like i'm sure it caught my eye as a young man because it had the uh, sex word in the title <laughs> um but i had never seen the movie um so i was eager for the opportunity to to make up for lost time it's a 1988 film uh, adapted from a stage play uh, directed by a woman called Genevieve Robert mm-hmm. Roberts or Robes. Oh, sure. <laughs> Who uh, is the wife of Ivan Reitman, but more importantly, the director of Casual Sex. <laughs> and it begins with these two gal pals on a uh, sort of 
black box stage setup. Uh, Leah Leah Thompson and Saturday Night Live legend Victoria Jackson, <laughs> and they're talking about the hazards of dating in uh, the late 1980s yes. because the dread HIV virus is uh, spreading. And uh, the sexual revolution is well and truly over, and you can't just hop into bed with any uh, any horse dick stranger because right. you're going to bed with <laughs> everybody he slept with, and so on down the line. So we catch up with these two after a little uh, a little filler where we see that Leah Thompson has had a very adventurous sex life, whereas the Victoria Jackson character less so. She okay. We're talking about like. Leah Thompson's had sex like four times and that we know of that we know of the numbers are insanely low I'm just gonna throw that out there well okay I mean (laughs) we're not all hooters here (laughs) as Dice might say I thought uh, I thought there were probably some ellipses but Victoria Jackson's character is identified as only having had uh, two lovers Mm -hmm. uh, and she's just uh, just broken up with a fiance so uh, these two gals um, decide that they're going to go off and uh, go on a little like health retreat to like maybe meet guys, but maybe just have fun. And uh, Leah Thompson uh, becomes ensorcelled by this uh, long-haired rock and roller type. Meanwhile, both of them are being uh, vigorously hit on by the Dice Man, who's mm-hmm. playing a guy called Vinny. Uh, the Vin Man. The Vin Man self-identifies as the Vin Man, who's in from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> romantic misadventures occur. Leah Thompson's character thinks that she's found the real thing, so she heads off back to L.A. with a rocker, only to find that she's found another fixer-upper. Okay. Another one of these creative types, but he carries his you know dirty gym socks around in a, in a uh, like trash bag. bag. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what? This is n- that's not where her head's at anymore. <laughs> Meanwhile, Victoria Jackson, uh, <laughs> who has uh, never uh, never popped her cookies before, gets her rocks off with a uh, sprite chipper young fellow at the health clinic. He's sensitive because he's shorter than mm-hmm. most men. He's a shorter guy, mm-hmm, yeah. and uh, you know, well, everybody's <laughs> kind of everybody's kind of getting uh, in a in a self improvement kick. The Vin Man sees that this like boorish Brooklyn gorilla thing isn't really going over anymore he starts to think about uh, himself a little and let's just say he goes through an interesting transformation I'm not going to spoil it (laughs) don't spoil the 1988 (laughs) film casual sex (laughs) I want everyone to you know discover it come to it clean just as I did Mm -hmm. it's uh, handsomely lensed by uh, a Rolf Kesterman who, insofar as I can tell, uh, is mostly noteworthy for having shot two Chris Isaac videos. Mm. And it has a sprightly, uh, insouciant score by Mr. Van Dyke Parks. That's right. And what can I say? What can I say about casual sex? I, I had a really... I, had a, I, I will say this. Uh, it is not what you would call precisely a very good movie. No. <laughs> However... It's not without a pleasurable bounce. Yeah. And I love how totally conflict-free 
the relationship between the two female leads is yeah. not not a single cloud passes between them no. in the entire course no. of the movie even when yes. and okay spoiler here uh both of them at one point fuck andrew dice clay yes. so they become eskimo sisters <laughs> and even this does not in any you've never heard eskimo sisters <laughs> even this does not in any <laughs> That. What the fuck indeed? Yeah. Um, <coughs> even even this does. It means? <laughs> it means they fuck the same guy. But I don't understand why they're Eskimos. Is that some reference to Nanook This is of just the, the term. This is. <laughs> this is just English. This is the English language. <laughs> and the uh, it's not a hitch at all. No. Uh, this is what interest, interested me a little bit, and maybe you'll know something more about the production history, is the movie's released in 88, which is about the time when Andrew Dice Clay is, like, becoming huge, like yeah. an arena sellout size star. And I was sort of taken aback to discover that this movie did a decent little business. This is like a $12.5 million grocer. Uh, which, even though it's not by any stretch of the imagination a great film, I, I'm sort of touched by the idea of a world in which casual sex yeah. <laughs> can earn $12.5 million. Yeah, and I mean, Genevieve, Robert, Robet, wh- what have you, she never directed another film. Mm, well, why do you need to? I know, she kind of she just like achieved perfection with the, this one. Drop the mic. But I wondered if it if like the dice man's part had been built out a little bit because the way it plays out, he's sort of reintroduced in a way that could have been tacked on. Yeah. His, his scenes actually were reshot. And I've been thinking a lot about Andrew Dice Clay because um, I finally, he was on the best show and for people who don't know, the album The Day the Laughter Died. Masterpiece. Which is a 1990 comedy album produced by Rick Rubin. And the concept behind it was that, again, Andrew Dice Clay, who was at this point huge, you know, filling up stadiums, doing this... Um, Selling out Madison Square Garden yes, like it's nothing. The first comedian to do so. And on Christmas Eve, without putting his name on the marquee at all, it just says comedy outside. On like some crappy upper east side not a nice comedy club and people just come in because they want to see a comedy show and he shows up and he has no scripted material he just goes just crowd work just pure crowd work for like two hours and it's insane and at one point and this is the line that everyone always cites he says it's not about laughter it's about comedy and that i was like that's really interesting and so i've been I've, i've listened to the album a couple of times actually so I was like interested to see him constrained in a film because one of the things that Dice said and part of the reason why he went through with this crazy like formal like performance art experiment at the height of his fame was that you know for him it's always been more about performance than actual doing like stand-up comedy and he said like oh I actually hate stand-up comedy like I'm not interested in that I'm interested in being on stage and giving a performance and I think here you can see moments where he's kind of like improvising, but generally he is kind of like constrained to like this rom-com formula. And it's there are these little lines where Leah Thompson comes in the room and she's like, 
here comes a condom express. And it's just a giant basket full of condoms for her friend. These are two women who are utterly obsessed with sex, but they really have not had that much sex and they relatively do not know that much about it, uh, which is about how their bodies perform. And this is like post our bodies ourselves, you know? It's very much of its time, it's as painf- we say. It's painfully of its time, which makes it like that much more interesting. Let's talk about AIDS, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we remember that uh, old twist on a popular classic. But people don't. If people don't know Gallagher, they definitely don't know yeah. that. Um, do they know Skin Deep by Blake Edwards? Another condom comedy from the oh. late eighties. I will say, in the course of this ninety-some minute uh, romantic comedy. I probably didn't laugh no. once. No, I didn't either. But I may have had a vague smile across my face at yeah, <laughs> no, various times. It's like almost Proustian because the movie begins with so Proustian. Buster Poindexter's Thank you for going there. Buster Poindexter's uh, feeling hot, hot, hot. Yeah. And it just like it plays that song like three times and then never at, towards the beginning of the movie and then never again. And the ending song is like some weird fake oh, the, calypso about how it used to be cool to have lots of casual sex and now it's not. Well, the Stephen Schellen character, who's the like long-haired uh, rock and roller, he has a great uh, power ballad. Uh, yes, which is sung in that like kind of gravel voice that was, I think, the de facto power ballad voice, and which has kind of been replaced by the Eddie Vedder-esque like. Mm-hmm. But yes. it's 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 really uh, it's something to behold. It is. Uh, yeah, great film. One of the best I've ever seen. Well, I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I could give you cinematic pleasure. Aliza, uh, what was the movie you saw that Michael gave you just for kicks? Violet, V I L E. Oh Let no! Per Michael, <laughs> for the last round, watch, making me watch Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, Michael, well, it's true that I probably wouldn't have ever watched Yentl <laughs> of my own accord. Oh, no. Oh, no. 1983's Yentl, written by Barbara Streisand. Well, directed, produced, and written by. Come on. And beautifully sung by. <laughs> and sung by. I feel like you've harbored this perverse desire to talk about Yentl on the Film Common podcast for a while. Only with you, Elisa. <laughs> so, Yentl, made in 1983, is about a young woman played by Barbara Streisand who grows up, well, it's a period piece. She grows up in Poland with a father who secretly teaches her the uh, Talmudic teachings. Even though girls aren't supposed to learn that. (laughs) So sadly, um, father passes away fairly early on. And Yentl decides to cut her hair and uh, cross-dress as a man to continue her studies. Um, It's a gender bender. It is a gender bender. In an era of many gender benders. Tootsie, Victor Victoria. Yeah. And it kind of... uh, Just one of the guys. Yeah. And actually, in that regard, it reminded me, although um, this is probably the only common trait between the two types of films is between this and uh, Chinese opera films because in Chinese opera only men were allowed to play female roles for a long long time so when they started making opera films women played men who dressed up as women so anyway so she she grows up dressed as a man 
and she befriends a, a fellow student named Avigdor, mm-hmm. and uh, they start traveling around. Played by Mandy Patinkin, we have to say. There are many Mandy Patinkin fans out there. Yes, <laughs> you right. You don't know Mandy yeah, Patinkin. Yeah, that, that's him. You don't know Mandy Patinkin? No. Hmm. I've never seen him in anything, I don't think. He has super Run, fans. Run. That's fine. I, I can't. Name He's him. more of a stage star than okay. movies, movie or TV star, though he yeah. was in those as well. I mean, sadly, this is my first Barbara Streisand movie too. Wow. Yeah. This um, is one of the major reasons I gave it to you, unknowingly. <laughs> so her and a Victor uh, travel around. A Victor thinks that she is a man, so they sleep in the same bed and they, you know, share their deepest darkest secrets with one another. Her, of course, withholding the deepest darkest secret from him all along they eventually meet hadas who's a young woman uh, engaged to be married to avigdor and a, a really bizarre love triangle develops between the three of them and uh so i hope i'm getting this correct avigdor is in- originally engaged to be married to hadas but then his brother commits suicide and Hadassah's family thinks that he might have like a psychotic streak in him because his family is psychotic. So then they suggest that um, she uh, get married to uh, the Streisand character instead. Um, and so there's this really awkward dinner scene in which Hadass starts hitting on Yentl and Avigdor is trying to hit on Hadass and everything every everyone's very confused um eventually uh after after this whole thing happens um uh streisand's character decides she has to tell this guy about her true identity and that's sort of the main blowout scene of the whole movie um is of her sort of bearing her breasts to a victor and showing showing him who uh who she really is and uh and then oddly, Evigdor turns around and says, I've always wanted to touch you. So there is a sort of like double gender bender in the sense that he was admitting to be sort of being attracted to this, to the male version of her character, but only after. To this young, beautiful, smooth, hairless boy who looks yeah. like Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so unusual? <laughs> Sexuality is a spectrum, and and he has these nice little specks and little spectacles. Yeah, it's, he does. Yeah, he flips out though. I mean, he 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 flips out and is very very angered by the news at first, and then eventually it turns into this tender moment in which they embrace and you know tell each other it's going to be okay. But of course, bound by tradition, Evictor um, still has to go back to his uh, original fiance Hadas. So. They eventually part ways, and at the end of the movie, we see Yentl as Yentl again on a ship sailing off to, I guess, uh, America. Probably. Yeah, but we don't know for sure. So what did you left out the most important part, which is that this is a musical. Yes, it's a musical, of course. But it's not really a typical musical. The idea was that Barbara wanted it to, to be atypical. 
because the music's all in her head. Right. So so it also said Mandy Patinkin, who is the male lead, is uh, is known for his very beautiful voice. He's a Stephen Sondheim stage performer, and he's not given a single song to sing. And Amy Irving, who plays Hadass, also a very good singer and uh, you know wonderful for her many De Palme performances. Yes. Like Amy Irving, uh, is also not given a song to sing. Mm-hmm. So there are about like eight songs written by michelle legrand michelle legrand yeah um and i do think that's probably the best thing about the movie um you know the writer of um, the murals of cherbourg young girls of rochefort composer um and they're all these internal monologues sung by yeah so the movie will just briefly pause for one of the songs to be sung by streisand's character despite being shot by david Watkins, who shot chariots of fire the movie looks kind of terrible it's really <laughs> ugly it looks like dog shit yeah it's so muddy and gross that's the shtetl for you <laughs> even when it emerges from the shtetl it stays it sort stays of like shit stained <laughs> um yeah it, it's it's a very um okay let me i'll just say not to dwell too long on poor yentl but um one in in trying to figure out what movies to give for these sorts of things um and considering the person you're giving them to like for for anyone here and and, and certainly Eliza um you have to kind of it, for something you would not I think you might not enjoy or might not like or is maybe not in your wheelhouse it has to be something that's like neither high art nor particularly low because those are the two registers it seems that most cinephiles tend to admit to enjoy so I thought it would be interesting to give you and I did this with with Nick last time with the Green Mile too. Something that you probably would never watch because it's right. it looks so heinously middle brow, right? right? Mm-hmm. And um, Streisand's kind of like the at this point in her career had become like the queen of middle brow, right? Um, so and it, it's sort of interesting also because I and I know the movie so well because I mean this movie was in rotation in my house growing up in a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents loved Streisand. It's just something that we all knew. It was like it, it was like Predator, Yentl. Tootsie, <laughs> and you know, so you had these like the Holy Trinity, really, the Holy Trinity. But or, they're or, Jewish, or or Creep Show. Like there, there were just all sorts of movies that we just watched over and over again. For some reason, Yentl happened to be one of them. So I yeah. think it's funny that a movie like Yentl is just in my head, and it's sort of a ridiculous film. It's not a particularly right. good movie at all. Um, there are things I like about it a lot, including the music and the plotting is sort of interesting. Mm. Um, I was but, really moved by Yentl's character, though. She's sort of a Joan of Arc, you know. To sort of deny her female destiny, or at least delay it for as long as she does, for the pure pursuit of her learnings. Um, I'm that's sure really, really inspiring. Would love to hear that you <laughs> compared her to Joan of Arc. <laughs> Somebody told me she listens to this podcast <laughs> pretty regularly. Ever since we did that two hours in Prince of Tides, she just she comes back every week. I hope you didn't have too terrible a time. And, you know, I mean, yes, it has the veneer of being middle brow, but it's kind of a crazy movie, you know? I was scandalized by parts of it, to say. <laughs> scandalized. <laughs> I scandalized And, and also, I mean, it didn't have a one-dimensional take on the sort of, like, dichotomy between um, tradition versus, uh, you know, uh, individuality. I felt like it was a sort of very... Um, measured approach to to that and it showed the humanity from all sides of of every character Mm. um yeah so it's a film that's incredibly incredibly earnest like almost shockingly earnest and for that i think it has uh, a great deal of heart and i would totally watch yentl again Mm -hmm. 
That's good. Aliza. Violet. <laughs> you gave me what did what did you what was the term you used? A dumbass movie? No, I was going to give you a dumbass movie, okay. but after having learned that you hadn't seen God of Cookery, I was yes. just like, okay, well, I was going to make you watch one of Michael Bay's Transformer movies, <laughs> which I've also not seen, which would have been so fun, but um, yeah. it would have been the perfect revenge. It would have been. I would have enjoyed just the synopsizing. <laughs> the Eliza-esque synopsizing of a Transformers then, uh, plot. Bumblebee gets lost. <laughs> But it comes back later. <laughs> he's the he's the funky transformer. Um, but wh- yeah, I just I mean, uh, God of Cookery is one of these films where if I hear somebody hasn't seen it, I try to get them to watch it right away. Yeah, it's a funny little movie. Um, so God of Cookery from 1996 is a Stephen Chow film, and it's funny. Uh, Stephen Chow plays a character named Stephen Chow, and basically, from what I've read about Stephen Chow, like how he works, this is basically who he is. Like he's a giant. He's like this giant asshole who goes around, um, and he calls himself uh, the God of Cookery. Obviously, it's the title. And he has these really, like, snippy things to say about everyone's cooking. He has a, this big competition. It's sort of like a Iron Chef, but weird, because it's a Stephen Chow movie. Um, this guy serves him some food, and he says, how can I have an appetite when I look at you? To reach your full potential, you need to have plastic surgery. And the, he's just, like, insulting, the, and he gives him a zero, because the guy has an ugly face. But he's not even ugly. Um, but in reality he can't cook like he doesn't he just puts his name on like inferior products just to make a quick buck um and he has like this whole empire sort of building with triad help which i should add triad's very involved in hong kong film financing again sort of a meta commentary anyway so he gets usurped by this fat guy with glasses who is originally just sort of like degrading and then the fat guy shows that he is actually you know stephen chow is actually terrible and he he takes the mantle of uh, God of Cookery and so a disgraced Stephen Chow sort of wanders the streets of Hong Kong and then he finds this stall of course run by Karen Mock one of the great his great collaborator she's yeah she's she's like my favorite part of the movie she was like attacked so her teeth are always sticking out and she has a giant scar in her face she so she's sort of like uh average to like like above average looking woman who is intentionally making herself look weird and ugly um but so they work together um they collaborate um and they create this dish called pissing beef balls (laughs) she tenderizes the meat in a really great way to the beef in a certain way and then they put juices and water and shrimp in there and so like when someone bites on these like beef balls they explode and like shoot all over um and so they build an empire based on that, you know, him and like uh, Karen Mock and like this other crew that sort of wanders around the streets uh, where their stall is. And then, you know, the fat guy's mad and he like tries to assassinate Stephen Chow. And then Stephen Chow, in like, <laughs> I just saw this on Sunday, so it's also reminding me of this, but it's sort of like a touch of Zen where he's on the run and then he falls into this monastery, uh, Shaolin Monastery, where he learns the secret of cooking and like gets in touch with. God, he comes actually really good at cooking and he takes his title back. The copy I watched had not great subtitles. They refer to Stephen Chow, uh, the, the God of Cookery as like, is he a, is he a satin from hell? 
just like, but so I'm missing out on some of the wordplay. So apparently, Stephen Child comedies have a lot of wordplay, but um, I just love like the there's so many little moments like um, this ugly girl is a big fan of Stephen Chow and he just like roundhouse kicks her to the face and she flies across the room. <laughs> it's like, and no one does anything. Everyone just resumes. Like they're just like nothing happened. Um, I find that very funny. Um, and then also at the end of like the big competition at the end where he makes, where Stephen Chow makes sorrowful rice, sorrowful rice where this woman is just brought to tears it's a kind of a pedestrian dish, but he puts so much like heart and soul into it. And she, there are all these like crazy video effects where she's like rolling over the pork. And stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, so I'm glad it was, uh, it was like, I'm not going to say it was like a hundred, like, again, I was mostly like kind of like smiling rather than laughing, but there were definitely a few laugh out loud moments. It's the anti eat drink man woman. It is. <laughs> it doesn't sound like pure revenge there, Lisa. You didn't take I know. pure revenge. I just couldn't help it. I love the film so much. It's one of my favorite films ever. So so if I had you watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back the way Violet did, you would just give me a big kiss on the mouth? Um, which is what you seem I, to do I mean, here. for the second time? <laughs> That's not allowed. That's so, not allowed. Turn the I other just cheek. jumped out the window. That's turn true. the other cheek. That's, That's what true. the good book tells Elise us. Elise is a bigger person. Why'd you make a face? <laughs> no one is being punished here. It's called the Revenge of Movie Gifts, but no one is actually being punished. This oh, is friends. also perhaps a good time to remember that I believe during the shooting of Transformers 4, Michael Bay was beset by triads in Hong Kong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well. But they were no match for the master. Well, I want to see that movie. Yep. That would be an ex- that would be better than anything. Immediately any my response upon upon hearing that news. <laughs> Yeah, no, I really, yeah, it was a fun movie, and I'm glad you gave it to me. Good, glad you liked it. Yeah, do you have anything to add? Um, no, I just think that you know, food is such a big part of Chinese film. I mean, mm-hmm. there's scarcely any Chinese films that you know um, don't have eating or cooking in them, mm-hmm. and this one just takes it to an absolutely absurd level. And it incorporates, I mean, just sort of everything under the sun. I mean, this movie is, like, operating at, like, 120% every single second of it. Um, There's, you know, the supernatural element, and there's that, like... That was probably the funniest part for me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Sort of, like, down and dirties, uh, gutter fights, and... um, yeah, that you gotta like wash out a pig colon, or the, when you cook it, otherwise there's gonna be poop in there. Yes. So yeah, I I was not grossed out by any of the food stuff, but I was also not hungry. I was hungry. I'm always I'm, hungry. Well, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn a lot about cooking from it. I think. Yeah. Like what it's like things you need to do to keep flavor in. So it's also a little instructional. Mm-hmm. Laugh That's while right. you learn. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. Well, Michael... What was the movie that Nick gave you that you he thought that you would, you know, 
have something he wanted to hear what you had to say about it well i think you just thought i would enjoy this because i I have a i have a hard time believing that anyone dislikes this film it's the phoenix city story phil carlson film from 1955 more than that i just don't think enough people have seen it i'm always surprised that it isn't sort of shortlisted with the great crime genre pictures of the 1950s because to my mind it is so clearly belonging uh in their ranks and any uh, much like Eliza said uh like anytime i know that somebody hasn't seen the phoenix city story a movie that was also a bit in the back of my mind because i've been writing about b-grade or poverty row thrillers over the last couple of weeks anytime that i encounter somebody who hasn't seen it i shove it down their throat well i appreciate itself down one's throat it does i appreciate the shoving (laughs) um i it it was absolutely phenomenal it's a again it's a 1955 ally artist poverty rope production um phil carlson who i guess is more known for walking tall some 20 years later but not at all a dissimilar movie right like that film but uh it's a small town corruption story this is based on real events that had happened just one year prior so it has a very ripped from the headlines feel which is emphasized from the very beginning there's a 13 minute prologue um which is actually just like a documentary prologue which is interviews with um cleet roberts a reporter from the 50s um interviewing the real people who were involved in this story in this case so in phoenix city alabama we're talking about it's this small time that was just rife with corruption um and culminating in the murder of the hopeful attorney general he was a, a lawyer in town who was running for the Democratic nomination for attorney general to help clean up this incredibly bleak, horrible place. Um, right across the state line from Columbus, Georgia, if I remember correctly, it's like the Sin City, mm-hmm. which has always been a kind of fascinating concept to me, like the city where the larger city goes to do its dirty business. Right, yes, Phoenix City was called a Sin City, and uh, it's kind of like Pottersville from His Wonderful Life, <laughs> but it really happened. Um not that it's this honky tonk, but that it, some uh, extreme violence was happening. I think what's remarkable about the movie is the amount of pretty vile and shocking violence that happens in this film, regardless of how low budget it is, regardless of how silly some of the effects may seem now, including there's a scene in which uh, an African-American a little girl is is murdered and thrown her body thrown out of a car the the effect in the, the in the film is actually quite fake it's clearly a dummy but that does not at all minimize the impact of the scene and the fact that and this was invented so i should also say that the film is an embellishment to say the least on what really happened a lot of characters are changed a lot of events are heightened to create more of a tension um and the mpaa was very upset by some of these things um it almost wouldn't release the film apparently um but this scene happens uh, as just this completely casually racist warning to another character like this little girl had nothing to do or even her family had nothing to do with what was going on with the main conflicts between white people in the town and these user has a warning like see what we did to this girl we'll do it to your kids kind of thing it's truly upsetting stuff um and it just kind of builds and builds and builds to this like crescendo of violence like just one murder after another um it's pretty shocking stuff like you know around the same time as kiss me deadly the big heat a lot of movies from the 50s that have violence that you will never ever forget this one is um way way up there 
I don't want to make it just sound like it's that's what's great about it that it, that it's that it's that it has shock value it's actually um just kind of like a perfectly structured little symphony of violence i would say and in that best kind of cheapo poverty row way there's no like overt style to it but it's incredibly um skilled at creating this corrupt world i mean the the scene in particular that you mention has always always stuck with me and it seems to me one of the things that's extraordinary about the movie is that in an era which produced more than its fair share of films full of liberal good intentions, this is the one that I think gives you a taste of the Jim Crow South in a way that no other movie does. And part of that I think is almost tied into its cheapness because there's a certain sense of danger about a shoddy looking movie i was just talking about this with a friend yesterday with regards to twin peaks the return and all of the like crummy looking digital effects that it uses because i feel like lynch is the one guy operating now who internalized that lesson of poverty row is that like shoddy cardboard sets that like shake when you close the door there's something intrinsically scary about that because you know there's not handlers around and like that movie just feels dangerous it's like there's a pungent air of threat that hangs over the whole thing and i don't for a moment want to say that by watching it i understand the jim crow south but it gets through something of that just ambient violence in a way that I I haven't seen in other movies. Well, also because it's about a town in which the white authority figures are all completely privileged to exert horror, violence, and intimidation on everybody else. And it just gets that across perfectly, and it's really a discomforting experience. It's a movie I proselytize for any chance that I can, as I do for Phil Carlson generally. Um one of the greats has jonathan rosenbaum ever written about that he film? has yeah okay. yeah i don't remember in what context but i know he has written about it at, at some point or another mm. and uh you know there's a, a small but dedicated cadre of phil carlson enthusiasts mm. well nick m- the film that i gave you the film that you gave me because i was interested because you are a big fan of history um, Love that stuff. You just can't get enough. Every day. You're like Peter happening. Weller. <laughs> <laughs> it also has, uh, it also deals with race in a historical context. Yes, you gave me the 2013 film, Bell, directed by Ama Asante. Yes. Which I recall it being on the cover of Sight and Sound around mm-hmm. the time it came out. Uh, and I don't think I really tracked it beyond that. Uh, English costume pieces are maybe not my bag entirely. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is like the Phoenix City story based on true events, though somewhat liberally interpreted and mucked about with Mm. uh, is the representation of said events. But the core of it is this that there is a young woman uh, in the year 1769 who is brought home by her father, her mother dead. 
Uh, and this young woman, who's half black, is taken to a estate house in Hampstead, I believe, mm-hmm. and stowed away with uh, relations, wealthy relations, uh, where she is to be raised a gentlewoman. Her father dies somewhere off tending to the business of the empire, mm-hmm. and she grows to young womanhood, uh, a close companion to another cousin who is also at the estate. And through the death of her father, she is endowed with a significant dowry. But, though this makes her very appealing to uh, young men without fortune, there is, of course, the issue of her race, which creates all manner of problems in terms of what, you know, what is the decorum exactly, how do you deal with a black gentlewoman, mm-hmm. and all of these uh minor points of decorum which are not so minor in the upper classes of England in the 18th century and from here we proceed to a kind of Jane Austen-ish drama of you know the predicament of whom to marry uh there are two likely suitors for the adult Belle who's played by Gugu Mbatha Raw I should say one of them is a vicar's son who uh, is without fortune, but he's uh, a woke ally and uh, <laughs> dashing fellow at that. And the other is a second son of a very good family who can offer a title, uh, but needs a fortune of his own. Needs a bit of a scoundrel. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the background of all of this is a case that is unfolding with regards to a slave ship uh, which en route to the New World uh, has thrown its cargo overboard in order to try to collect insurance. And the sort of father figure in the household is played by Tom Wilkinson, who is a, uh, I'm, I'm not sure precisely like what high is. High court judge or high something. High court judge, yeah. the highest of high court judges, yeah. is having to decide as to what the uh, outcome of this will be. Basically, in the case, cargo, quote-unquote cargo, are the slaves and so the way this case is decided could establish a precedent that it's like they are people or they are cargo Mm -hmm. like it's it's like very it's it's an intense thing (laughs) all of this is really intense i love this movie and the i mean the treatment i should say seems to me fairly in keeping with your kind of heritage prestige drama this is not a sort of radically formalist piece. No. (laughs) It is going very much for the emotions and an emotional appeal. And on that level, I have to say, it pulls all the levers very effectively. Mm -hmm. I was definitely a puddle while watching (laughs) watching this movie. Uh, I'm a soft touch, uh, (laughs) as anybody uh, who sees movies with me regularly knows. Um, that being said, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, save in the fact that it is a heritage prestige drama, 18th century costume drama that has at its center a black woman. And Mm -hmm. that is kind of enough to make it pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. That kind of succeeds in elevating it to a, a different level. And it should be noted that the central performance is really lovely. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, one of uh, great transparent emotionality. At the same time, it does not access on the deepest levels some of the some of the matters that it brushes across. Uh, we see in the relationship between the uh, two cousins a sort of understanding that arises that there is some equivalency or parallels that exist between the state of women in the world of 18th century aristocratic England and that of uh, people of color in the larger white world, which is addressed in a very on-the-nose way, but mm -hmm. perhaps not worked into the like larger architectonics yeah. of the thing. That being said, on a on the level of emotional appeal, it is very, very efficient, and it very, very much does what it sets out to do, which makes it, you know, to my mind, a totally successful movie. I don't know that it goes that extra step uh, that would make me fully drop to my knees for it, <laughs> but I mean... I'm as susceptible as anyone to a hangdogish Tom Wilkinson discovering his conscience. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> probably not something I should confess here, but I, I, I definitely wept salty tears watching Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Expose him. <laughs> Expose him. Um, um, yeah. So no, the, I mean. The Wilkinson factor gets me every time. Yeah. I was a big fan of this film, and I saw. Asante talk about it after a screening and clearly she had put so much care and thought and things that she had experienced in her own life into the film and I really feel like that made it really rich and um, I feel like a lot of films that deal with race in a historical context it's just like there are certain periods that it's okay to depict and like before that time black people didn't exist yeah. well no and I think that is the sort of thing when alt-right people get mad because there is a depiction of the Roman Empire where there are, you know, North Africans in Britain when the Romans were there. They get mad about that. And it's like, no, people have been moving around. That is the history of the world. And I think that addressing that and showing like, well, you know, not everything was like hunky-dory, but, you know, this woman did exist. She did get married. She did have a child. Like, this, this stuff happens, you know? Well, very, it very... happened. Like, don't pretend like it didn't. Running through the film is the creation of a somewhat famous double portrait of yes. uh, um, the Belle and uh, her cousin. Played by Sarah Gaddon. Which, but it, it's interesting because in the actual portrait, she has a sort of orientalized headdress on, which yes. is not in the film's portrait. No. And I mean. Because you get to make the movie you want to make. Sure. <laughs> I mean, but I wonder about this, and this is always. Uh, we we open with the you know title telling us based on a true story, and m much that is in the film does indeed come from history. Though the timeline has been Shifted. significantly dickered about with right because the case that her guardian is you know presiding over happened when she was like three, mm. like she was very young when this case was decided. But I think there's a good argument to be made that having her in his life made him think differently about it. And that's ultimately, 
I under again, like clearly they had needed some it's, like it's, big thing, like a big thing to sort of like what is gonna happen? What's the tension? But it's not something I get like my nose bent out of joint about, but no. I so often wonder given that there is such a premium put on like Vers- really, yeah. really accuracy making certain that everything is historically accurate to uh the finest point and that films are very much uh sort of prosecuted for this i I wonder if it's not in some cases better to just remove things one degree yeah you know change names i don't know i don't know um, but I also just dock a couple points anytime I see based on a true story at the head of a <laughs> film now. Well, thank you, Nick. I'm glad you were reduced to tears by the thing I gave you. Lisa, <laughs> what was the film that Michael gave you to sort of chew over? Um, so the quote-unquote serious selection for me by Michael was <laughs> Cria Cuervos. Cria Cuervos. There's no R. That's fine. Pronounce it however you want. Cria Cuervos by Carlos Saura from 1976. And there needs to be a distinction between what the film is about and what is in the film because um, it's an incredibly complex and richly layered film. Um, But basically what happens in the film, there are only a few things. Um, It follows the childhood of a young girl named Anna um, who in the very beginning of the film witnesses the death of her uh, strict military father while he's consorting with um, a woman that he's having an affair with. And uh, she believes to have been responsible for the uh, for the death of her father just because at one point her mother told her that this stale baking soda in the kitchen was poison. And so she lives with this guilt. And in the meantime, a strict aunt comes and takes care of her and her sister. And um, the rest of the film really just lives uh, inside of Anna's head. Anna is played by the saucer-eyed Anna Torrent, who's also the protagonist in Spirit of the Beehive. Mm -hmm. And the film also stars Geraldine Chaplin, with Mm -hmm. whom I believe the filmmaker was having an affair with at the time. They ended up having a child. They made a lot of movies together, too. Yeah. And Geraldine Chaplin plays the grown-up Anna. I believe a Spanish actress dubbed over that. And uh, she also plays um, Anna's dead mother. And in in that role, she speaks Spanish with her own uh, voice, which is tinged with an English accent. The only uh, the only uh, sympathetic friends that Anna seems to have around the house are... Um, uh, an overweight housekeeper and um, her her pet guinea pig. Um, so two chubby friends. Yes. <laughs> and the film ends with the first day of school, the two kids going off to the first day of school. But Michael, this film made me think of you the entire time because I think um, in many ways it's a sort of female companion piece to The Long Day Closes. And so many parallels can be drawn between Anna and Bud. Um, in that it's the melodrama of the entire film comes from her interior emotions and um, sort of the the pains of childhood and not really knowing where what things mean or the gravity of one's actions or where one is going um, and also in the structure of the film because it's, it's so elliptical 
and it focuses on the sort of like textures of the moment as opposed to sort of painting an overall uh, picture of the times. Yeah, I love this film a lot. The only holdback I guess I have was just uh, there's, a, a, there's a lot of explanation by the grown-up Anna character that I felt like was sort of unnecessary because the film already shows so much. And at, at one point, the adult Anna does say something that I love, though. She says, I don't believe in childhood paradise or in innocence or the natural goodness of children. I remember my childhood as a long period of time, interminable, sad, full of fear, fear of the unknown. And I totally relate to that because when you're a child, time is meaningless and you think that you're just going to be a child forever. And it really, um, you know, when you feel pain, people don't feel sympathetic for you because they just brush it off as, oh, you know, that she's just a kid but you, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And of course the subtext for the Anna character and her sister is that after the death of their father, they become completely orphaned. And so they're forced to create these uh, interior worlds to live in. And Anna retreats to the basement and sort of lives in her own world. And it's not until the end of the film where the kids go off to school that I realized that most of the film I mean, 90% of the film takes place in and around the house. So it's sort of this weird chamber drama. And when they finally leave for school, there's a sort of deep breath of air, you know, mm -hmm. as they enter the, the real objective external world for the first time. Um, I'm glad you brought up Long Day Closes because, yes, I do think of these films together. Um, it, the quote that you read is an interestingly related to how Davies feels about childhood, but also it's kind of the inverse because he always felt like, though childhood for him was also full of pain and mm -hmm. um, sadness and melancholy, he was always, he says that he was always um, aware that it w was all coming to an end and that he could, he wanted to hold on to the moment before it was gone, which is what Long Day Closes is actually about, like a, yeah. being actually aware of the passing moment and right. trying to hold on to it. Um, so it's interesting to think of them, but I mean, yeah, I mean, for some reason enough, you know, movies that try to get at that kind of ineffable mystery yeah. so well of childhood are, you know, They're always so my rare. favorite movies yeah. to watch, but they are rare. It's like, you're, you don't always have a Korea Cuervos or a Long Day Closes or a, or a Paper House or an E.T. Right. Um, you know, you get often very crass movies about children. So when something this poetic is out there I just want everyone to watch it which is right. why I wanted you to watch it I just thought it was it's it's almost like what Nick was saying about Phoenix City Story it's like mm -hmm. this is a masterpiece I've never heard anyone say they don't like this film yeah it's just beautiful right apparently the filmmaker Sara was um, an outspoken opponent of the Franco regime and the film was made towards the end of the Franco regime so there's it would not be difficult to draw illusions between what happens in the film and the sort of disparity between inner and outer life mm. of the characters and the filmmaker's own uh, political disposition but even when not viewed in that context just as a pure portrait of childhood I think is, is wonderful. Yep. It was I mean it, it was released like the year after Franco died it was talked about that way he did talk about it that way um this emerging into the light after this period of darkness so it was it's there but yeah the experience of the film has nothing to do with that actually yes. so thank you michael you're very welcome so the film that eliza gave me to chew on is a very excellent movie released the same year as casual sex uh it is 
Stanley Kwan's Rouge. Mm. Um, I had seen Actress before, and Actress, in some ways, it's similar. I, I actually, um, I think I like Actress more than this, but this is, I'm still sort of like thinking about Rouge. Michael Atkinson in this magazine described Rouge as half self-regarding pop, half Proustian meditation on time, love, and destiny. And I think that's a very excellent way to put it. So this newspaper man named Yuan, he's like working late one night. His like fiance girlfriend is off reporting on a story. And this woman comes in, Fleur, and she's dressed in like a Chiang Sam traditional dress with very bright red lipstick. And she wants to place a ad in the paper asking for her lover, Chen Chen Peng, to come meet her at the usual place. And it's quickly revealed that she is actually a ghost. And Flora is a um, courtesan in an opium den. She died in 1934, and she appears as a ghost in 1987 looking for her. Her lover was referred to as the 12th son because it was like fashionable to have huge families then. But he was actually the second son. His older brother died, which meant that he was going to get all the... Um, his family owned like dry goods stores, and he was hugely wealthy because of that. And he frequents this opium den and falls in love with Fleur. And because his family objects to their marriage, uh, Fleur makes the executive decision to, uh, you know, have a lover's suicide. Uh, the twelfth son does not agree to this. Uh, UN's girlfriend makes a big deal about. It. She's like, "You're an asshole for doing that." And it's like, "Yeah, you know, that's an interesting uh, way to sort of see that." Um, and it just follows her quest to try and find him. And then when she does find him, uh, let's just say she has a very modern reaction. In 1934, he wanted to get into uh, the Peking Opera because he liked singing, and there's definitely a parallel made between like the Peking, like how disreputable the Peking Opera w- was, and how disreputable the movie, the movie industry in uh, 80s Hong Kong was. Um, and like Yentl, it has a very <laughs> interesting relationship to history because, you know, there's obviously Fleur's representative of this tradition like she and her lover are like being crushed by tradition like they're not allowed to get married but then they also want they choose to die in this very like traditional way like this very old school way and you know the modern couple um Yuan and Chora they like they're super modern you know they don't they don't wear traditional dress they you know there's this moment where they ask each other if they would die for the other one and they both are like no which is like kind of sad, but then you come to understand it's like, well, that's not bad. That's not a bad thing. And it's constantly navigating the old and the new and Flora walks around and she'll look at a street corner and she'll see it as it was. And then now it's, you know, like a mini mall or something. And and it's not sad. It's, 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 really, it's a really, like I said, I'm still kind of thinking about it. And I would actually really like to watch it again because it's a very beautiful movie too in addition to just being like very complicated and then you think it's going one way and then it goes another and just yeah because having seen actress which is just a series of left turns and a labyrinth and you're but it's amazing so i really really enjoyed this one it's um it's such a elegant and flexible premise i'm kind of astounded that it hasn't been ripped off more yeah such a like cool way to think about not only changing mores but to think about urbanity Uh, like it sort of it's it sort of dazzles me that this movie hasn't been 
uh, tinkered with. The yeah. premise hasn't been tinkered with. Not just, that it's not almost perfectly executed as it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or just that like Stanley Kwan wasn't a huge deal. You're going to take John Woo, but you're going to leave Stanley Kwan. <laughs> like you could take, you could have both. You can have both of them. They do different Ma- things. Masculine cinema always beats feminine cinema in our culture, sadly. But I, I recall reading about Stanley Kwan, who is, I think, one of, if not the first openly gay filmmaker yes. in Hong Kong. Yes. I read somewhere the statement that uh, it, it was considered that his films had fallen off after he came out of the closet. I passed this along to uh, our friend Melissa Anderson, who said, well, don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should we should add that Floor is uh, played by Anita Mui. Yes. And, uh, well, people like to call her the quote-unquote Madonna of Hong Kong, but I think that really doesn't do her justice. Yeah, she's, she's, she's got a lot more gravitas than, than Madonna. She's Mui. Yeah. Like, she don't need to say, like, she's like the. She's just her. She's incredible. I hate when that people and, do that, yeah. um, you know, sh- she actually committed suicide uh, shortly after making this film around the same time that Leslie Chung did. Mm. And... You know, just in retrospect, it makes that role so much more poignant. Yeah. Um, especially because it's sort of all about Stanley's yearning for this bygone Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. The way that he portrays old Hong Kong is so unspeakably romantic. You know, yeah. it's just um, so velvety and lush. And the reds, the it colors. Is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it is like opium tinged you know yeah it'd be, you really want to smoke a lot of opium yeah <laughs> like you're just like wow but then also like, why do why do i live in these days in ex- these times exactly exactly but then there's also a lot of stuff that reminds you it's good to live now it's yeah. really good to live now because you're not beholden to what cast your family comes from and you have like some you don't have total mobility like clearly we don't have total mobility in this society um but it, we have more than these two people did and like they have what, agency the girl yeah. has more agency than the 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 guy in the relationship mm-hmm. in the modern relationship yeah and then ultimately so does fleur i won't spoil the ending but there is a very funny part where they're at this um movie set and this direct this woman is doing like a Bridget Lynn like flying out of this like old house and she has all these flowing robes on and you see Fleur is walking someplace and then you see this woman being swung playing a ghost in the back and I'm like fuck that's so good it's really good it's so good um yeah but Thank you for giving me that. I now I, I want to watch it. the second time around in Ampon repeat viewings. Fleur's first appearance in the film mm-hmm. really guts me. Yeah, more and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's like, she, she. Yeah, again, it is really unfortunate that she committed suicide because she gives like a truly amazing performance. And obviously, both her and Leslie Chung sing in the film. And they went on tour together. Oh my god, there's really good video footage. Oh. Well, there's really good video footage of Barbara Streisand on tour where this little girl that's playing Barbara Streisand as a little girl gives a, f- a rose to Barbara Streisand, the woman. Oh. Yes, because Barbara Streisand, uh, as you learned, no one else can be on the stage except for Barbara. <laughs> they can o- only avatars of Barbara can appear next to her. <laughs> Michael is nodding solemnly. That's true. That's true. Don't on. touch Barbara. Yeah. Well, Babs, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thank you all for the gifts.
Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.